Well, good morning. My name is Ken, and welcome. Yes, welcome to Crossroads Bible Church. And as I look out there, I see some familiar faces, faces of people who are now becoming my brothers and my sisters. And there's nothing better to worship Jesus with family. I also recognize that in the midst of this gathering, there are people who are new faces, people who might be new, brand spanking new, to Crossroads Bible Church. If that's you, we're glad that you're here. With that being said, we're also glad that you're here because we are in the midst of a sermon series. Yes, a series of messages in which we are studying the book of Daniel. Yes, this Old Testament book of the Bible. And this morning we have the pleasure, the joy, the enthusiasm. Can I get a witness <laughs> to look at Daniel chapter 5? I thought we need a little bit of that interaction, right? We've been sitting, now we need to be talking a little bit. Or talking. Daniel chapter 5 has one story. From the first verse to the very last verse, there is one single story in Daniel chapter 5. And what we're going to do, or at least what I'm going to propose that we do, is this. This story reveals two things. Two really important things for all of us to hear. Here they are. First, the story tells us who we are. Second, the story tells us what we're supposed to do. Who we are, our identity, what we're supposed to do, our purpose. Now some of you are looking back at me now and you're going, Ken, I'm your brother or your sister. I'm here every week. I know the answers to those questions. If you're saying that to me now, I am encouraged by your confidence. However, the reason why we gather week in and week out is we actually believe that God speaks through the Bible to show us new things about who he's made us to be and what he's made us to do. So this morning we're going to look at this one single story and then we're going to look at the story of this story with the three main characters in mind. Yes, the three main movers and shakers of this story are going to help us see our identity and our purpose. Now before you stand up and crack open those Bibles, let's just get the historical background to our text. Let's spend a few minutes because Crossroads, we're a church that loves history, right? We have a lead pastor who preaches the history of the Bible week in and week out in Rod Van Sulkema. We have him and his wife who lead these wonderful trips that Joanne just talked about to help bring us into the history of the Bible in real time, in real space. And as a card-carrying nerd, yes, I have a card that says I'm a nerd, I am geeked out every time I get to preach here. So here's some historical pieces for you as we step into this story. First piece, Babylon has a new king. Yes, Babylon, whoa, fumble. Kind of looks like that team that lost last night. Oh! Sorry, thank you for the catch. You just keep it right there, oh, right there. <laughs> Didn't plan that one. Babylon has a new king. It's hard to come back out of that one, isn't it? I mean, come on. 
Babylon has a new king. So if you've been here for the last four weeks, you've noticed that there's this king called Nebuchadnezzar, a fellow who built the greatest empire at this time in world history. This guy was a baller of a king. He knew how to conquer other people. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he died like everybody does. He's dead. And so now we have a new king, a fellow by the name of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is the king of Babylon that rules from the capital city. There's some historical debates on whether or not he had another king that he co-led with. That's not exactly certain. But Belshazzar is the new sheriff of Babylon. Second piece of history. Babylon is crumbling. Yes, this mighty empire is falling apart. No joke. And the reason why it's falling apart is there's this coalition of these two smaller empires uh, called the Medes and the Persians, kind of like America and Canada joining forces to conquer another country. Well, these Medes and these Persians have one goal and one goal only, and that is to take down the Babylonian Empire. And they are literally knocking on the gates of the capital city of Babylon as our story is about to pick up. Last piece of history. Babylon is partying. Babylon is throwing the rager of all ragers. Yes, in the capital city of Babylon, there is an 11-day party going on. It's kind of like Times Square in New York on New Year's Eve, 11 straight days. And this is even more intense because in Babylon, back in them days, what the folks did was they took the statue of their primary god, they wheeled that statue out of the temple, put it outside the city gates, So they could metaphorically believe that their God was not watching what they were doing. Which means they could do whatever they want. Which also means the town of Babylon is distracted as the Medes and the Persians are knocking on the door. That's the history. That's what's happening. Please stand as you're able and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to look at the first nine verses to see our first character, character that helps us see our identity and purpose. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 9. Here we go, y'all. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace where this raging party is taking place. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. 
the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Friends, have a seat. So Belshazzar is the first character of our story, clearly. And here in the beginning of our story, he is hosting a VIP party in his own banquet hall. He's having all the top-notch moguls of the Babylonian Empire in this banquet hall, and they are drinking gallons upon gallons upon gallons of vino. Why? Because they can. And it's at this very moment during this VIP party that Belshazzar does the foolish thing. He does the most foolish thing he ever does in his entire life. Here's what he does. He sends his servants down to the museum that his father Nebuchadnezzar had built. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a conqueror of people. He knew how to kill people and take their stuff. But Nebuchadnezzar was also someone who respected history, just like we do. So he would take artifacts, like those goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. He'd put them in his personal museum. He would stroll through there. History tells us this is true. And he would revere and respect the history and traditions of other cultures. Belshazzar had no respect of other cultures. He sent his servants in to pick those goblets or cups or wine glasses that go all the way back to the exodus out of Egypt. These are some of the most sacred vessels in all of Israel's history. And he has those brought into this banquet hall. He has his servants pour wine right into them. And then he and his moguls, they tip their glasses to each other. They praise their gods of gold and precious metals, lesser gods that exist to serve him as a king, and then they drink. Now you're looking at me thinking, well, the most foolish thing that he does is this. He's sacrilegious. He's taken these special things that come from the temple in Jerusalem, and he's using them in a very uh, just foolish way. I mean, he's knocking these vessels. He has no respect for the history. You're right, that is foolish. But that is not the most foolish thing he does. The thing that he does is ridiculously, I'll just say stupid, is he does something that has deep theological consequences. Let me tell you what I mean. What Belshazzar did was he had these things that represent the God of the Bible brought into his hall, and then he uses those things to praise these lesser gods that serve him. Are you seeing what's happening here? Let me tell you one more time. Belshazzar has these things, goblets, cups, that are the manifestation, representation of Yahweh. And he has those things brought into his banquet hall. And he puts things in there that go right into his belly that end up in a toilet. Belshazzar is saying this. 
Yahweh, you're a wimp. That is the most foolish thing Belshazzar ever did. And the reason why he does this is because he's addicted to power. He loves power. He can't get enough power. I mean, you know what this king language is all about, friends? Kings, kingdoms, reign. It's all about power. A kingdom isn't a geographical location like the Babylonian Empire that ends here and ends there. No, no, no. A kingdom is simply this sphere where someone exerts their power to control people, places, and things. Because in that sphere of influence, no one has more power than them. Belshazzar is addicted to power. And after carefully studying this text, uh, dialoguing with other scholars of the book of Daniel, it seems clear that Belshazzar was not fooling around when he chose those goblets from the temple of Jerusalem. It seems he did this incredibly intentional, that he would know the stories about his father, Nebuchadnezzar, how he was repeatedly humbled by the God of who? Israel, yes. He would have known those stories. This great king, Nebuchadnezzar, the one that everyone remembers as the best king of Babylon, the builder of the empire, he would have known those stories, how Yahweh humbled him. And so in this liquid courage moment, he wants to tell the most influential people in all of Babylon simply this. That God does not have power over me. That God is a wimp. Would it be all right if I share with you the name of another person who has a history of being addicted to a power? I'm going to share this person with you with humility and vulnerability. Friends, that person is me. I confess that in my life, I have had a struggle, even as a Christian, with an addiction to power. Now you're looking back at me and you're going, oh my gosh, you're recruiting me for a church plant, and here you're telling me you're addicted to power. Uh, No thank you. Uh, Friends, please understand that God has been breaking me of this for 14 years. In fact, there is a very specific moment that God broke me of my addiction to power. And I'll tell you about it quickly. But let me tell you what that power looked like for me. I was one of those people that sought people, places, and things out to fit into my kingdom. I had a strategy for how they could advance my goals, how they could help me exert my power. And then I, like a king, was the judge. The judge of what was good and what was bad within my realm. 14 years ago, God broke me of that. 14 years ago, I was this guy that had recently become a Christian as a young adult. I didn't really understand all these things, like words like justification or sanctification. I didn't understand that there was Bible colleges and seminaries and all these fancy-pantsy places to go learn theology. So I did what any secular new Christian would do, is I took courses at a secular university in religious studies and classics. 
I learned Latin and Greek and German and ancient history in a secular lens because that's all I knew. And I was doing well in this second bachelor's degree. Some of my professors were like, hey, Ken, you should consider going to grad school and studying this stuff and maybe teach it someday. Maybe write about this stuff. You seem to be energized and you have capacity for it. Power mode kicked in. The plan to advance my own kingdom started to work in my head. I picked out the right grad school. I had the right references. I wrote the right papers. I did everything well, got into the program I wanted to get into, and here's where God changed me. I got a phone call from that grad school that said, yes, you've been accepted. We look forward to you coming. However, we cannot qualify you for any scholarship money. I'm like, why? I've done everything right. I've, I've put in all the time, all the energy. I should be top of your new class. My power. They said, yeah, you, you've done well, but here's the thing. The Selective Service Department doesn't have you in their system. Apparently, years earlier in high school, when I filled out that form saying I'll go to the military if I need to, uh, I put the wrong Social Security number down, or they entered the wrong one in. And because of that, the grad school couldn't qualify me for any financial aid whatsoever. And by the time this whole thing got sorted out, uh, it took two to three months. And by then, all the financial aid was doled out to other people. You know what happened to Ken Lucas, the man who was addicted to power? He crumbled. I collapsed. There I was, sitting in the mountains of Albuquerque, New Mexico, looking out at this big city for miles and miles. And I was weeping. Because for the first time in my life, I realized I had no power. I had no idea what to do. I was broken and uncertain if God even existed because I had the right plan. I had all the right people telling me I was going in the right direction. But all of a sudden, my power was not good enough to accomplish my goals. Somehow God didn't fit into my plans. Somehow he wanted me to fit into his plan. Friends, when you are addicted to power, you will collapse. And this is exactly what happened to Belshazzar. God bless you. Belshazzar crumbled. Our text tells us that as soon as he tips back the vino, looks at the wall, he sees this hand by this brightly lit lampstand, and he sees the hand, and he's terrified. And the reason why he's terrified, because he knows what that hand represents. He doesn't know what the writing exactly is, but he knows what that hand represents. In the ancient world, the hand represented power. The hand represented ultimate authority. Because with these things, you can do stuff. And every king was proud to say that by my hand, I did this. Uh, Old Testament God of the Bible says, by my hand, I made you. I created the heavens and the earth. By my hand, Israel, I rescued you out of Egyptian slavery. By my hand, Israel, I've handed over people like the Philistines to you. By my hand. Belshazzar saw that hand, and he knew that hand was more powerful than him because that hand came into his banquet, and it was out of his control what it was doing. And ultimately, he knew that that hand represented 
the one thing every king had the power to do, and that is to judge. This is exactly why he's terrified. And let's talk about collapsing through a different lens. So our text says that his legs became weak and his knees began to knock. Well, we can retranslate that, Well, shall we? Let's retranslate it to his loins were loosened. Or his bowels became uncontrollable. Are you catching what's really going on here? He couldn't control himself. He literally, his bodily functions can't, went out of control. And that's exactly what it means to collapse when you're addicted to power, is you lose control. Because ultimately, we don't have control. As Christians, we know that we don't have control. And I say this to a large group of people who are looking right at me now, and I recognize that some of us in this room are probably realizing this lesson like I learned it 14 years ago. There might be some of us here in this room right now that are realizing that we don't have control over our relationships. Maybe a spouse, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or even a son or a daughter is starting to work their way out of our mighty grip of our hands, and we don't know what to do. We are losing control. Or perhaps this is happening to you because of your job. You had this plan carefully laid out to be the corner office person or that top corporate job that everyone's going to recognize that has the power. But those 70-hour work weeks are starting to take a toll on your body. Those nights of no sleep, that anxiety that wells up all the time, thinking about all the complex relationships at the office are starting to take over. You are losing control. Or maybe you're like me as a Christian. You have a carefully laid out plan to become a pastor or a counselor or some other sort of leader in a church. And you've got the right steps in front of you, but all of a sudden they are starting to crumble out of your hands. They are unraveling because we're losing control. Belshazzar tells us who we are not. He tells us that we ain't the king. Because we are not in control. Now, as I say all that, you're wondering, okay, well, we know who we aren't now. Who are we? The only way to answer that question is to return to our text to see the second character of our story who's going to show us who we are and what we're supposed to do. So stay where you are. You can stay seated. And I'll read to you. Daniel 5, verses, let's go 10 through 12. 5, 10 through 12. Here we go, y'all. Okay, here it is. 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. King, call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. At this moment, I'm sure all the ladies in the house are going, yes, finally. 
Our identity is like the queen. Yeah! Sorry. Maybe the world would be better if you were, we had queens. I don't know. I don't want to wade into that one right now. But it can't be something that's gender exclusive to a guy or a girl. And nor can it be a position of ultimate power. Remember, queens have lots of power. So if it's not the queen, in that chunk of text that I just read to you, who's our second character? You want to say it, don't you? Yeah? Who is it, y'all? Daniel. The queen is talking about Daniel. Daniel is the one who's going to give us our identity and our purpose. Now, you're looking at me going, well, Daniel's a prophet. He had this anointed, anointing by God to do this very specific task. And yes to all those things. But remember, we're in this kingly kind of banquet hall so whatever term we come up with that captures our identity has to have a regal flavor to it. In the ancient world, it was common for kings to have ambassadors. This goes way back before Babylon. And we're talking Egypt, Israel, and even in Babylon. We know for a fact that kings relied on ambassadors for three things. First is, a king would handpick, carefully choose a person to be their ambassador for a very specific mission. The second thing a king would do is they would pick that person to carry a message, a message to another person or another group of people somewhere else. And then third, an ambassador represented the king. This is what that means. When someone sees the ambassador, who they truly see is the king that sent them. Daniel was an ambassador. Now before we discover who's the king that sent Daniel, I would like to tell you about somebody else. Actually, you know what? Hold off on that. There's something really juicy in that text we've got to talk about. So in our text we discover why Daniel is such a great ambassador. This is actually really cool now that I think about it. In our text, the queen, a Babylonian woman, a woman who probably worshipped other gods, not the God of the Bible, a woman who could be and should have been suspicious of Daniel because remember, he's in exile. He was ripped out of his home in Jerusalem and dragged over to Babylon. He didn't want to do, to do this. Daniel has every reason, like every other Israelite that's still alive in the Babylonian Empire, to try to take that empire down. Yet, she calls him intelligent, wise. She refers to Daniel as a great leader. She says that he has the ability to interpret and make sense of things that only gods can do. What the queen is saying is she's giving us the secret sauce as to how Daniel is such a great ambassador. It's because she trusted him. She trusted this foreign fellow to speak the truth. In 1928, there was a missionary by the name of John Micaiah, a Scottish fellow, who was invited to speak to one of the earliest uh, Western... Um, missionary conferences, if you will, in Jerusalem, ironically, the place where Daniel is from. 
And John Mackay was not just a gifted missionary to Peru, but he was also an incredible theologian, probably one of the earliest theologians of mission. He would later become the president of the grad school I eventually attended. And John Mackay is at this conference, and he's his turn to speak. And the title of his speech is The Evangelistic Duty of Christianity. Mackay was a gospel guy. He was a guy that believes we Christians have the task of carrying the message of the gospel to other people. And he has a quote in that speech that I have never forgotten. He looked at those missionaries the same way that we are gathered in this room today. And Mackay said this, you've got to earn the right to be heard. Hey, missionaries, going to these foreign lands where people don't know about Jesus, you've got to earn the right to be heard by the very people that God is sending you to. Daniel earned the right to be heard in Babylon all those years ago. Amen. He earned the right to be heard because that queen probably was there and watched in Daniel chapter 1 how Daniel said fast to not eating food that would defile his body. He had strong conviction. That man had a backbone. At the same time, he served that king in Daniel chapter 1. He gave the king the truth about those dreams. And that's not all. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prayed and fasted before he gave an interpretation to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, because he took that role so seriously. He could be trusted and not all. Last week, Rod shared how Daniel told the king out of humility and genuine care, hey, king, I'm afraid to tell you about your dream because your enemies are going to love it. Daniel earned the right to be heard by the very people that he was sent to be an ambassador to. Friends, Crossroads Bible Church, new people, we are ambassadors. That is exactly who we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we are Jesus' ambassadors. Jesus himself has handpicked every single one of us in this room, chosen you, and he's sending you on a specific mission, perhaps to the microbrewery down the street or the YMCA to play basketball or even in your classroom. And where he's sending you, he's carrying, he wants you to carry his message of the good news of God's incredible love for the whole world. And that's not all. When those people, those people that God is sending you to take a look at you, they need to not see you. They need to see who? Jesus. Friends, we've got to earn the right to be heard so the gospel has more credibility. That same fellow, that Paul the Apostle guy, that crazy dude who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament, he says this on numerous occasions in his letters that are in the Bible. He says this to Christians just like you and like me. He says this, you got to walk worthy of the gospel. You got to live it out in every way, shape, and form. You don't have to be perfect, but when you mess it all up, I almost said a different word. Remember, I'm from Jersey. 
When you mess it all up, you have to look at those people who don't know Jesus. You have to say, I'm sorry. I dropped the ball. I shouldn't have done that with that money. I shouldn't have said those harsh words to you. I am prideful. I yearn for power. Please forgive me. That is how we earn the right to be heard. And in this country, right now, in this city, I will tell you this. As a church planner, I'm in lots of weird conversations. And I'm hearing more and more people who are young who are saying no to Jesus Christ because of the church. Church has not earned the right to be heard. But those young people are craving, craving the gospel and gospel community. Friends, the good news is you're an ambassador sent to those strategic places. This could be a great time to end this sermon, right? I mean, this is our identity. Now we know our purpose is to earn the trust of the people that God is sending us to. We could call it quits right here. But I made a promise to you all, right? I promised there's three main characters in our story. I've only given you two. So we got to return to our text to see the final third character. And that's in verse 18. And I'm going to read a whole bunch, but it's good to read the Bible. Here we go. Verse 18 down to 24. Your majesty, this is Daniel now speaking to Belshazzar. The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, you, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you, you Belshazzar, did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. And all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. I'm going to say this as clearly and as simply as I can. The third character of our story is God himself. And God is the king. God is the king. If you've learned anything in this sermon series so far, you should have learned this. That almost each time Nebuchadnezzar gets into trouble, he says this. Something like this. 
Daniel 2.47, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Daniel 3.26, hey Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God. Daniel 4.34-35 last week, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, the God, does, not, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold his hand back or say to him, what have you done? And then I just read to you this. The most clearest representation so far. Verse 21. The most high God is sovereign, ruling, reigning, king over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. God is the king. And friends, from the very beginning of the book of the Bible, God is seeking out his creation that he made himself. He's trying to bring it back into his own kingdom. And the way that God chose to do this is he picked a bunch of slaves in Egypt to say, those are my people. Those are the people that will be a light to the nations. And those people are going to be in relationship with me in such a way that the broken world around them will want to be with me, their father. And that's the way God rules. He rules with the hand, not of an iron fist, but as a loving father. As a father who wants us to know who we are, our identity. A father that wants us to know what we're supposed to be doing. A father who's also the judge. The judge who wrote on the wall telling Belshazzar, your days are up. Your deeds have been weighed on the scales and it ain't good. And your kingdom is about to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar heard this judgment and listlessly gave Daniel a gold chain in purple and said, you know, you're the third highest person now. And then he died. But don't look at God's judgment purely that way. You see, remember, I said earlier, Daniel is an ambassador, right? I didn't tell you who sent him. God is the king that sends the ambassadors. God is the king who sent Daniel to Babylon. Think about it. Israel was supposed to be in this relationship with God. They goofed it all up. God allowed punishment, judgment to come. They were ripped out of their homes and scattered like seeds throughout the Babylonian empire. Check this out. But God's impulse, God's desire for his kingdom is that the whole world will be in relationship with him. So the way to get Israel to live into its ambassadorial role is to allow this exile to happen. So Daniel had to go to people People who were enemies, these Babylonians who killed family members and friends, who knocked down their temple. Daniel was sent to those people for a specific mission to carry the message to Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar, God is the king. Daniel lived it out. When people saw Daniel, they saw Yahweh. Friends, as you're earning the right to be heard to the very places that God is sending you, remember this. Those places will look like Babylon. Those places will look like places you don't want to go. But those are the very places that God is sending you. And to end our time, to end our time, I would like to just share with you one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. 
that captures the wonderful way in which God brings us into his kingdom to be his ambassadors. It's in John chapter 8, the very beginning. You probably know the story. Jesus is this great Bible teacher. People are flocking to Jesus to hear him open up the Bible in a way no one has ever done before. He's got this large crowd around him, and all of a sudden these religious leaders drag this woman into the center of the crowd, and they force her to stand up. And they say, hey, this lady's been caught in adultery, Jesus. What are we going to do? Jesus says not a word. But with his hand, he kneels down and he starts to write. They continue to pepper Jesus with what to do with this lady. And Jesus continues to write with his hand. And we don't know exactly what Jesus said or wrote down all those years ago. But we do know that judges in that time would write down their verdict over a particular person or group of people, and then they would pronounce it. Innocent. The hand of God says she's innocent. And that's not all. Jesus stood in her place. Think about it. They're ready to pick up stones. Jesus doesn't go far, far away from her. He goes right next to her. And he stands in her place. If you're going to throw a stone, throw it at me. Because that's what Jesus does. Friends, this story is the foreshadow of the hand of God that is fully revealed at the cross where Jesus died. Because at the cross where Jesus died, all the judgment that the king could throw down on the whole of humanity for all the sins that we've committed committing right now or will come in the future were weighed on the scales and they were proven to be forgiven only because God is the judge who is the father who wants us to be in relationship with him and that's not all the good news is he stood in our place Jesus the king stood in our place that is good news it's good news for you if you're here today and you're starting to lose control Forget about it. It's good news for those of you who are here today who aren't sure what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Don't worry. Just earn the trust of the people around you right now. It's good news for anyone who's here today who isn't so sure about this whole Christianity thing. Perhaps you're here and you're like, wow, I don't know about a triune God or a cross or the Bible. Well, the good news is Jesus knows you and he stood in your place to set you free of the weight of sin. Would you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, we love you because you're the kind of king that loves us. And we're so thankful that all those years ago you wrote in the ground, innocent. And we thank you that you do that for all of us here today to set us free to be the ambassadors we were meant to be. Uh, with the purpose of simply just earning the right to be heard by the people that you're sending us to so we can share something that is definitely good news. Lord, give us uh, all the things that we need to be clear, to earn the trust, and to be passionate about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.